To the Archives podcast. I'm your host and producer, Mareva Lindo, and I'm here to tell you what we've been up to for the past year. I can't believe it's been that long, but there is a good reason. Last fall, we were offered a partnership with StoryCorps, a nonprofit oral history project that records conversations between people around the country and preserves them in the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. They've archived over 100,000 stories. Millions listen to weekly broadcasts on NPR's Morning Edition, as well as a local series airing on WBEZ, and I am a huge fan. In collaboration with StoryCorps over the past year, we've recorded over 50 conversations with people from across the Old Town School community. Sixty years ago, in the holiday season of 1957, Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music first opened its doors. Beginning today, the Archives podcast is celebrating the school's 60th anniversary with a six-part documentary series on the school's history through the voices and songs of the people who were there. The episode you're about to hear tells the remarkable story of how Wynn Strachey, Frank Hamilton, Don Greening, and Gertrude Solker came together to found the Old Town School. You'll hear archival music and recordings from Studs Terkel, Pete Seeger, and the founders themselves as well as many of the people who participated in our oral history partnership with StoryCorps this past year. Without further ado, we present to you 60 Years of Folk, Part 1. Come for to sing. My name is Bob Reisman, and I am speaking with my friend and colleague, Ron Cohen. I am Ronald Cohen, and Bob and I are old friends who have worked together on many projects, particularly a book called Chicago Folk. Now, People's Songs was organized after World War II by Pete Seeger and others in the country. Uh, Woody Guthrie was involved in New York and in Los Angeles and in Chicago. Through your research and research by, uh, and writing by other people, it became clear that people's songs, because it was an organization that was uh, intentionally political, uh, it fought on behalf of strong unions and against uh, racial injustice, a set of people like uh, one of the co-founders, uh, Wynn Strachey, of the Old Town School, Wynn Strachey, uh, Studs Terkel, they were engaged and involved. And uh, there was also a blues musician, Big Bill Brunzi, who uh, participated in some of the hootenannies that people's songs put together uh, as part of their uh, recruitment efforts and their motivational efforts. And that heritage... I would identify very strongly as part of the DNA of the school. My name is Jane Strachey Bradbury. Both my parents uh, were Chicagoans. My mother was born in Austin, and she was a good singer, too. 
My father, uh, of course, was born in Kansas and came here as a two-year-old, I believe. Uh, his father was a minister in a church on the near north side, German Baptist, a little different than what we think of as kind of Southern Baptist. My father's father, my grandfather, was an immigrant from Germany, um, had several children, and when the family came up from Kansas, my father was two, they settled in the edge of Old Town, where the church was, and uh, then they moved up uh, to Andersonville um, later, and that's where my father went to grammar school uh, at the Trumbull School, and then to uh, to uh, Sen. Yeah, and I wanted to mention something about uh, when when we were kids, we used to sing in the car. I mean, we were, did a lot of singing in the car and a lot of Woody Guthrie songs about the windshield wipers and all this stuff. But my father would also. S- sing the song that he told us was composed by the principal, I think they were mostly female in those days, of Trumbull School. This is an eighth, eighth grade, you know, one through eighth grade school. And this was the song. Hail to the Trumbull School, long may it stand on the corner of Foster and Ashland. Hail to the principal, long may she reign, may the Trumbull School be her domain. <laughs> that always cracked us up. Um, and then he went out west, and that's as a young man before he had any kind of set career. So that's when he went out to worked in the oil fields and I guess cotton fields in Wyoming, Thermopolis, Wyoming. Um, and that's where he met this guy, Flatwheel Harry, you know, and learned about folk music and all this. So that was really early. Oh, I've been a wandering early and late. From New York City to the Golden Gate And it looks like I'm never gonna cease my wandering And then he came back to Chicago And I don't think there was ever any question that he wouldn't live in Chicago Because he loved it I mean, he, and then he got into music. He studied, you know, classical music uh, and uh, was very good. And so that was really his, his first real career. I don't know the name of the school. I, it's one of the ones that I think is maybe still be downtown. And that's where he met his first wife, not my mother, first wife, who was also a singer. She was a soprano. He was a bass baritone. And they sang together and, at Grant Park. And, and my father sang on the radio, absolutely national barn dance, uh, Several, several radio programs. He was a professional singer. The trees are all ivy, the leaves they are green. The times are past that I have seen. For it's I must lie alone in the cold night for my body laddies long long ago music was always a, a part of a part of him and a part of our lives at home as i said we used to sing in the car we'd have in the good days before my father got blacklisted you know we built a house in michigan on Lake Michigan in uh, near Bridgman. And uh, in various places along the trip, 
crossing over into Indiana, there was a song we'd sing, and then going by a certain restaurant, there was another song we'd sing, and of course it rained, we sang songs, we just always sang songs. His father was, I think, part of the social gospel, so it was very much help people, we live in the world, that kind of thing. I think that had an effect on him. And he got involved in very left politics, and a lot of his friends came from that. You know, he began singing and continued to sing for union, organiz- union organizing and all this kind of thing in the, in the 30s. And that led to the rep group, which was a theater group. That's where he got into acting. I think that's where he first acted. That's where he met Studs Terkel. And, you know, when I was about 51, 52, my father was doing really well. Studs' place was on. He was a, a sought-after performer. And then he, he got the children's program on TV. So everything was fine, and which was a program uh, where he, was, he had all these animals in his house, and he was Uncle Wynn, and he'd sing songs to the animals. Oh, the bull weevil is a little black bug come from Mexico, they say. Come all the way from Texas, just a-looking for a place to stay. Just a-looking for a home, just a-looking for a home, just a-looking for a home, just a-looking for a home. Just a-looking for a home, great God, just a-looking for a home. Everything was great, and we had this house that he built in Michigan. And then, yeah, we had to sell the house. And well, he depended for quite a while on just doing concerts at schools and for PTAs and in the suburbs and, and all this. And uh, his illness manifested itself. It turned out my father was um, bipolar, very, very a very uh, strong case of manic depressive disease, as they called it then, he would go off for, for a couple of months to a hospital. And, of course, it was tough for my father when he was very depressed, but he had to put food on the table. And I remember him going to concerts at a school, you know, to give concerts, and he felt terrible, but he had to perform. It was, it was very tough. It was very tough. So I knew the word blacklist, and a lot of his friends were blacklisted. His best friend in the world uh, was an actor named Phil Loeb, who's well-known still. He was from Philadelphia, but he was a New York actor, and he killed himself, and it was very much to do with the blacklist. There are, when you do this kind of research, there's so many intertwining stories uh, I mean, Bill's involvement with setting up the Old Town School, uh, for example, in the later 50s. But another individual who was very involved with this school was Frank Hamilton, who was also involved with the earlier left-wing movement in Los Angeles. And he was influenced by Bess Lomax Hawes, who began to teach this style of uh, sort of community lessons uh, in Los Angeles and she was the sister of Alan Lomax. Now, Lomax, as it turns out, started these oral history interviews when he was at the Library of Congress in the earlier 1940s. So all these people's lives intersect. Uh, You had mentioned a set of people, and some of them were associated with what I would argue is the seminal folk music group in uh, Chicago of the modern era, Uh, And that was a group called I Come For to Sing. And it included uh, Wynn Strachey, Studs Terkel, um, a singer named Larry Lane, uh, and Big Bill Brunzi. 
And when they gave their debut performance in November of 1947, it was at Mandel Hall at the University of Chicago, very large venue, uh, and they got a very good turnout. But what was particularly noteworthy of the timing uh, of the emergence of this group is that at that time, in 1947, Big Bill was the only African-American performer of the group, and they were performing in Hyde Park. And at that time, there was a law on the books which made it legal for Chicago landlords to refuse uh, to rent to African-Americans. And it was also a year before President Truman had uh, issued the executive order that desegregated the armed forces. So I have to think that that was a powerful moment and a powerful image for those who were gathered there. And it turned out that the uh, I Come For to Sing group uh, went on to a successful run into the 1950s performing at uh, one of the most prestigious jazz clubs in town, uh, the Blue Note. But the set of individuals who studs, win, Big Bill, that nucleus was a crucial element of the folk music scene, and then later uh, that was then transmitted into uh, the Old Town School. Win Strachey had a dream. He had a dream. All these years, Win was, you know, Win sang on a very popular radio program before TV. It was called Hymns of Old Churches, a member of the choir of the chorus. And they sang, uh, it's on the network all over the country heard, and this group sang uh, hymns and songs of all religions, all of them, you know, and hymns of all sorts. And Wynne also sang German leader, very good at that. He had a great voice for a classical singer, great bass baritone, and, of course, labor songs and folk songs. And during a lot of these folk song concerts in which Wynne participated, he thought something was missing. Singing at a nightclub isn't quite it. Singing at a concert hall isn't quite it. There should be a place where people gather who are interested in folk music and themselves would like to know more about it and learn. They thought, how about a school? There are music schools, Juilliard and Eastman and here in Chicago, you know, for in the classical world, in fact, some jazz sections. But there was no such thing as a folk music school. Can there be such a thing? In which they learned to play the instruments, the basic instruments accompanying us, such as the guitar and the mandolin and the dulcimer and banjo. And so Wynne conceived the idea of a school. Well, because of, of this proliferation of folk music at that time, a lot of people were interested, both from my singing and for the singing of other people. And I would get a tremendous number of requests to, to teach the guitar. I didn't play, play any other instrument, but, uh, and I didn't feel like devoting a whole lot of time to teaching because it takes time from your, from your performing. My cousin, Bob, Robert Strachey, who was the son of my father's oldest brother, Bob is still alive. He's 
91 now. He told us a few years ago, he was downtown, I guess, having lunch with my father, and they were walking along. So this must have been in the middle 50s. And he told him then, you know, he had this idea. And uh, this was the the thing which developed in my consciousness as uh, I went along. Then when conditions presented themselves, I attended a class given by Frank Hamilton out at Don Greening's house. Jack Elliott begged us to go along with him, with us. Three of us took off, and we started exploring folk music in the southern states. Had a dog, and his name was Blue. I had a dog, and his name was Blue. Had a dog, and his name was Blue. I bet you $5 he's a good one, too. Here, oh, Blue. You good doggy. This was pre-Civil Rights. I remember in Mexico. North Carolina, or South Carolina, South Carolina, I think it is, where Guy's relatives were, we were told that if we had visited a black Baptist church, we should get out of town the next day because we will be hunted. So it was that kind of atmosphere that we went through the South. I'm a-walking down the track, I got tears in my eyes, trying to read a letter from my home. If this train runs me right, I'll be home tomorrow night. For I'm 900 miles from my home. And I hate to hear that lonesome whistle blow. My mentor for teaching guitar and related string instruments was Bess Lomax Hawes. And she was out in California teaching classes. She was probably the first one to teach classes of folk music using accompanying instruments, stringed instruments such as banjo, guitar, fiddle, etc. I learned quite a bit at her feet, and then I, I brought that particular technique of teaching in classes to the group. 
trainings at, at their home and then inevitably the school. Without Bess Lomax Hawes and without Pete Seeger, there would have been no no old town school because they were the first ones to to bring to the uh, to the table uh, a, a community based egalitarian approach to music where everybody mattered. Pete is all, had grown up uh, through the left wing movement and through the idea uh, that uh, the music was uh, predicated on the on the common man, on the common worker, and uh, that it was. Um, was not an exclusive uh, academy-oriented kind of thing. So he always had the view that he would bring audiences in to the Hootenanny, which was really kind of more of an egalitarian concert than it was a, uh, a standard a classical music concert where somebody got up on the stage with tails or or uh, got up on the stage and uh, led uh, and. Uh, Rather than lead the audience, performed for them. But Pete's song, song leading skills had a great deal of influence, and his motivation for being a song leader and bringing the audience in was a catalyst for what we thought of, of the school as being an educational device to uh, to that could incorporate not only seasoned musicians but people who were just starting out. Pete always had a social View of music. It was a. It was music was uh, to be, to be spread socially, and not an exclusive club. We're gonna roll. We're gonna roll. We're gonna roll the union on. We're gonna roll. We're gonna roll. We're gonna roll the union on. Now we're learning it. Frank Hamilton worked out a way to to make uh, classes of students work together in large numbers, carrying on the idea which Bess Hawes invented in, uh, on San Fernando Valley, California. Instead of private lessons, they were less expensive also to take group lessons. And uh, Frank Hampton built the Old Town School of Folk Music on that system, but uh, I was mightily impressed. It was a very social way of teaching. I met Bob Gibson in New York, and Bob was playing at the Gate of Horn. And uh, he said, hey, man, come on, join me, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a ball at the Gate of Horn. So I went there, and I accompanied Bob, played with him at the Gate of Horn. And one night, Odella, who's an old friend of mine from Los Angeles, came down to hear me, and she had canceled the dinner date with Dawn Greening. And Dawn was very irate over that. She said, what do you mean? You can't come to dinner. And Odetta says, I've got to go see my friend Frank Hamilton. Hi, I'm Lance Greening. Basically, I consider myself to be the first student of Old Town School. <laughs> you, you probably are. Hi, I'm Rick Veris. I first met Lance in the 1970s, about 1973, and sure. we did have a little folk group for a while, but stuff happened in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> 
in 1955, we were regularly on Saturday night, we'd listen to the uh, Midnight Special. And Nordstrand was one of the announcers. And he always plugged the latest talent in town. He'd play a rash of songs by the artist and then he'd announce where they were. And most of it was at the Gate of Horn early in 55. And then <clears throat> mom would hear who was there and she'd quick, okay, Saturday night, this is where you and I are going, Nate, my dad. It is my nature to share. And like I don't like to attend any theatrical production like a movie or a play or anything alone because I want to be with someone who I, I can share the experience with. This kind of hung over to my feelings about folk music. I came from a family with a mother who uh, was Norwegian background, and so every once in a while we'd hear some Norwegian folk music. And as I grew older, I lived in a suburb of Chicago called Oak Park, and we had so much ethnic music surrounding us not in Oak Park, but in Chicago. And we have become our regular patrons of the Gate of Horn because there was good music, we considered good music going on all the time. So we got to know Al Grossman, and he let our whole family come in without charging us. And we would just pay for what we consumed and get to hear all this good music. And they would meet the artists, Bob Gibson and Pete Seeger would come in town. And, and Odetta came in town, and, and um, mother, mother would invite them out, the performers, out on Sunday to have an early meal before the performance. So uh, we had several uh, artists come and stay for, uh, not stay as much as just have dinner, so... That was a Sunday night dinner. And she became good friends with Odetta. Now she was looking for a teacher for, for the banjo and the guitar because I was going to learn the guitar and my dad was going to learn the banjo. So that was fine. She put that in her memory bank. And then one day we went to a concert in Oak Park. We lived in Oak Park, so went to a concert at uh, the First Baptist Church in, in Oak Park on near Oak Lake and Oak Park Avenue, and Wynn Strachey was singing, and I remember he was singing in a Baptist church, he was singing Methodist Pie. I went down to camp meeting the other afternoon just to hear them shout and sing, tell each other how they loved one another and to make hallelujah ring. It was old Uncle Daniel and Brother Ebenezer, Uncle Rufus with his lame gal Sue, and Polly and Melinda and old Mother Bender, well, you never seen a happier crew. Oh, 
little children, I believe. Oh, little children, I believe. Oh, little children, I believe. I'm a. I don't have to exhort this crowd, it's wonderful. Methodist till I I remember him singing that. And, and he used to, he, used, he says, I know we're in a Baptist. He'd stop in the middle before he'd sing the chorus. And he says, I want you to sing it too. But when we come to the part about, um, and I'm a Methodist till I die, you just say, you're whatever you are. You know, and then he repeated different religions, and, and including atheists. He says, you could say you're an atheist and you'll be one till you die. He was... Impressive. He's big, with a deep bass voice. You wanted to, when, whenever he was, whatever he was singing, you wanted to get in line with him. He just wanted to go wherever he was going. That was that was a an, the impression I got from him. So after the concert, Mom went up to him and said, "You know, uh, do you teach? You know, folk music or music with guitar and banjo." And Wynne said, no, I'm sorry, I only teach people who can sing and who are professionals. So she said, well, he, he said, but I'll let you know when I get, I'm going to start a folk school, so I'll let you know when I start this folk school. This was in the winter of 56. And then one day she had invited Odetta to, to dinner on a Sunday night and Odetta, you know, accepted it. And then she called back on Saturday and said, I, I'm not going to be able to make it. And my mother was a little bit upset about the fact that Odetta was canceling. She did not come out this one Sunday, and her excuse was that she had to meet Frank Hamilton. I said, well, who the heck is Frank Hamilton? And she said, well, he's a friend of mine from California, and he is just a wonderful musician, and, and he's going through town, and I have to meet him. And Odetta says, well, why don't you come along and meet him? And so the two of them came down to the Gate of Horn where I was playing. And Frank, I went to the afternoon that he played um, at the Gate of Horn. I can remember him, a very skinny person, and he got up and he played the he had a 12-stringer, and he played—I don't remember what it was, but he said something about, like, Big Ben, and he plucked the guitar and swung it, and it sounded just like the old Big Ben sound. And, you know, it was just swinging it and plucking it with his left hand as he was swinging it. Boom, bong. To me, it was the confirmation of what Odetta had said was that he could play anything. Frank had fallen for somebody who lived here, so he was looking for something to do while he was in town. So I thought it would be nice if he came out to the house and gave lessons at two bucks a head. I can remember Kiko Kanagamitsu, I think Nate Lofton, Ted Johnson, 
couple of other people, myself and my dad. There lived a witch upon a hill. She had three crows for to do her will. <coughs> Just as soon as ever the red cock crew, they flapped their wings and away they flew. I'm Marcia Johnson, and I'm here with Ted Johnson. That's my husband. I knew that woman looked familiar, which is why we're both here. Yes, I'm Ted Johnson. At the Gate of Horn, there would be these sort of open mic affairs, and uh, people like me and other people who are just interested in this kind of thing would appear there. Do you remember any of the people you met there? The big, the big, the most important one, of course, was Don Greening, around whom, in some ways, the Old Town School was formed, certainly in the, in, in the terms of its spirit. Don Greening was this woman, Marcia can probably describe her more easily. Another, she wasn't just the woman, she was a presence. A presence. She was a force. She was an enormous smile and a whole room full of energy, as I recall. Whoever mother touched, she became their support on every level. Like I remember uh, Fred Holstein said, aren't you a little bit upset that your mother seems to love everybody so much? And I said, no, I'll tell you what, my mother has so much love that I'm glad there are other people to take some, to take some of that. <laughs> <laughs> she was in everybody's corner when it was important for them. I mean, she got the Holstein family all into into it, supported them, uh, just whatever they were doing, and it was great, you know. She was a, a big woman with a big heart. Here was Frank. He could use some gigs. He could use make some money. So Don said, well, why don't you teach? You can teach at my house. And so naturally, I showed up there, too, and... Also, Win Strachey. Win Strachey was a magnificent voice and, and musician, and he also played the guitar, but he figured he'd take some lessons there, too. And I still remember we were sitting in the class, and Frank was teaching us about 10 or 15 people, and he sort of had us all coordinating with each other. And Win Strachey was sitting right next to me, and he turned and said to me, I'm going to start a school around this. This has been The Archives. Tune in again next Thursday, November 30th, to hear the second installment of 60 Years of Folk, this documentary series on the history of the Old Town School of Folk Music. There are also a ton of events happening December 1st through 3rd in celebration of the anniversary, all listed online at oldtownschool.org 60th. That's 60th. To learn more about our partnership with StoryCorps this past year, go to oldtownschool.org StoryCorps, that's spelled S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-R-P-S. There you can listen to some of the stories we've collected over the past year, as well as learn how to share your own Old Town School story as part of our ongoing oral history project. I want to thank Francesco De Salvatore, Colby Maddox, Scott Lundius, and Jay DeRogers for their invaluable support, work, and feedback on this partnership over the past year. This episode is especially dedicated to four of the voices you just heard, Wynn Strachey, 
Don Greening, Studs Terkel, and Pete Seeger, who are no longer with us. Check out the episode notes for more detailed information on the recordings included in this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by subscribing to the archives on iTunes, following us on Facebook, or sharing it with a friend. If you haven't already, we also ask that you review us on iTunes. It's a huge help to a growing podcast like this one. I'm your host, Mareva Lindo. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.